Look, y'all, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sorry that this took two weeks to get out. You would not believe the technological nightmare I had to go through of extracting this audio from a corrupted video file by putting it onto an old laptop that ran slow as hell that then needed so much like work on it as far as like correcting the audio. It's a long story and you don't care. You're just happy there's an episode out and I'm happy to be giving you this episode. I hope you enjoy it. We discuss at length 2001 A Space Odyssey. I hope you enjoy and we'll be uh, back in two weeks with another brand new spanking episode. this would be a movie that I would not like. I didn't think you would like it. You would think that with the world building, mm-hmm. with the... Uh, pacing. Pacing. With the lack of real story structure, mm-hmm. that this would be a movie that I, uh, would drive me crazy. And there's definitely one section that does and we will get there. But this movie is such like a already masterpiece right that it's hard to say it sucks it's just so good Mm -hmm. and you're intrigued to keep going you are engaged uh, engaged definitely um what's the other one you are um there's lots of things and we'll get into it all but i uh really loved and this is i'm sure no surprise I, I guess it is a surprise. I don't know. Anyway, I like 2001 A Space Odyssey, and that's where we're starting. Before we get and do anything else, of course, we're going to say, Hello, my name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the show. Uh, this week, to the Brothers Trek About. You knew that, though. You've already clicked on the thing. Uh, this week, we were talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, because it not only came out in between these two seasons, um, but of course, this thing is it, it's beautiful. It sets the pace for what will be the motion picture. It also sets the pace for um, a movie that I, of course, love, Star Wars. And it sets the pace for all future science fiction and everything else. So and style? Household style? Yes. I almost feel like the hotel we're in borrows a little bit. <laughs> <of the thousand laughs> space. Yes, it is, it is very modern. Oh, but before we go anywhere else, of course, I want to say hello to my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. How? Open the pod bay doors. That's right. Well, uh, if the audio sounds a little bit different, if obviously the video is very different, uh, we are in a hotel. We just visited the Pops. He turned 80. So we thought uh, on our way back, we would uh, talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I kind of don't know really where to begin uh, from here, except I guess at the beginning of the movie. Well, uh, let's talk about the structure a little bit. So it's an art piece. It is an art piece. not a piece of entertainment. You don't. Mm-hmm. You okay. don't. You don't watch it to enjoy it. Yeah. You watch it to think about interesting concepts like, uh, you know, how does humanity get where it's going? What is the future of humanity? Um, it's more thoughtful than 
your average piece of entertainment. Oh, much so, yeah. Yeah. And like, what does the future hold? So it, it, it does very interesting things with those kinds of questions. And it's very dense. Yes. While at the same time, nothing is going on. <laughs> Which is very interesting. Yes. And also... I mean, of course, it's a shock for me. I'm opening a water here. Um, it's also a shock for me because, again, as you have heard, if you've listened to the podcast and any kind of thing, they, those are, that's the kind of stuff that usually drives me crazy. It's like, there is nothing going on. And it will drive me crazy in the motion picture when we get there of many, many minutes of screen, of staring at a screen, which we're going to get, which is not surprisingly the same part of this movie that drove me crazy was once he goes through the dimensional door at the end and just all of the effects and all yeah. of them are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm those like, were familiar oh. effects. Yes. I mean, they, they looked like going to warp in the motion picture. Yep. Uh, yeah. So we noticed lots of effects that both reminded us of the Star Trek, the motion picture. Yes. And kind of, I'd say more set piece elements like the, the landing with a Pan Am. It's not a jet, but it's a shuttlecraft. Yeah. Lands in the shuttle that looks exactly like Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah, looks like the the escape pod, and then well, not uh, just that, but the bay itself and the guys working at different levels yep. around it. I mean, it's like you were in Star Wars. There. Yeah. Uh, there's also a shot of the back. I think it's the back of the Discovery that looks like the back of the Tantive Four mm-hmm. at the beginning of Star Wars. So yeah, there's lots of. El- I mean, <clears throat> we know obviously that uh, George Lucas in creating Star Wars took elements from everything, right? Took elements from this movie. He even took, you know, Douglas Trumbull, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, who did visual effects on this movie. He took him to do stuff on this movie. Uh, we know that he took stuff from Dune. We know that he took stuff from Classic Myth. You know, Flash what... Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon. And so what... And maybe we'll do Star Wars down the line. But one of the great things that, of course, he did in that movie was take all of the elements to make one big movie. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, a lot of people have a lot to say about that. George Lucas being a thief or doing saying whatever they want to say, but you know, he created one of the best movies of all time. On that point, so, I would I would recommend the uh, the podcast series. It's all a remix, mm-hmm. you know, which deals with the fact that that creation is not a spontaneous genius coming from the head of Zeus kind of phenomenon, but yeah. uh, a, a series of adding, mixing, and adjusting and copying. I guess I'll talk about this now because it keeps popping into my brain. But the very last 10 minutes of this movie, when Bowman goes into, comes out of the other side of the door, and he's in his little room, which we'll talk about more in depth later. But there are so many shots of that that feel so Lynchian to me. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a shot of him in the pod, and he's like shaking, and it's, it's, it's that sped up kind of weird... Mm-hmm. And, and his eyes are doing the weird thing that you know it looks like something that would happen to and does happen to like Bob and the man from another place in in the red room you know what I mean the black lodge so uh, that was really weird it's almost like Lynch saw those last 10 minutes of <laughs> 2001 a space odyssey and like well that's the way I'm gonna make movies for the rest of my life it's just <laughs> this kind of weird opaqueness this kind of weird pacing this kind of weird camera stuff you know, um, and the density, and the yeah, and the density. There's a lot going on, but nothing is happening. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Very. Uh, and and again, I've I've now finally handed off to you. I mentioned years ago in the podcast that I was finally going to get you season two, but then we had a you know pandemic and stuff. 
So finally got you season three of Twin Peaks. I can't wait for you to watch it. I can't wait to do a thing about it uh, because it's very Lynchian while at the same time not Twin Peaks-ish. Because, you know, Mark Frost had a lot to do with the show itself. And so I think that the original two seasons are a lot more Mark Frost than they are David Lynch. And so then, but then you get Fire Walk With Me, which is very Lynchian, very little Mark Frost. And I feel like, and I think that David Frost has even gone on record as saying like, yeah, I wrote the scripts and then I gave them to David and he did his thing. So I know that there's a lot of stuff that they shot that don't end up in there. There's lots. So it's, which is, of course, it's just like the movie, Mm -hmm. Fire Walk With Me, where there's just so much in the box set that you see from that movie where you're like, wow, okay, that's crazy. We got off track here. Back to 2001 A Space Odyssey. So let's... Um, that a good place to go to start at the beginning of the movie? Yeah, so the movie's uh, set up in almost unconnected, I'd say four mm. different That's a great point. chapters. Yes. And so chapter one takes place four million years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Dawn of Man. What's interesting about, for me, what's interesting about the Dawn of Man sequence is that we we forgot to talk about the two minutes of cacophony at the beginning. There's all that music playing for two minutes before the movie even opens up, before we get an MGM Presents or whatever. So I watched this on my Kindle. Uh-huh. And I did have... I was wondering at the beginning, is, is, is something wrong with my Kindle? Is it oh. just not playing? Yeah. Is this a technical fault? You know, I think watching it on a proper screen that you know is working or that you can click and watch something else... Yeah. Know, Oh, yeah, I got on my web pages. Okay, whatever. Yeah. It's uh, Kubrick, whatever. Yes, exactly. But when you're sitting there on your Kindle, you're like, I'm not sure this is working. Yeah. But anyway, back to the Dawn of Man, which is amazingly shot, very beautiful. Um, there's lots of docs out there talking about how they do everything, but, you know, basically they went out and shot, you know, panels of stuff and then rear projected that onto a very uh, glowing screen. So that's why a lot of the stuff, which of course Kubrick does already, but it's also, but there's a lot of one shots of things because they wanted to get the, get the, the backgrounds, which were amazing. Yeah, so they sent, they sent a team to Africa to basically just get beauty shots. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So uh, it's also amazing looking at uh, what they did shoot. Just the, the like, uh, this is the kind of thing that blows my mind that like probably lots of people have maybe considered, but maybe you haven't, so I'm going to share. It's just, you get those first, I mean, you get like a minute and a half worth of shots of just like the Earth, of, of like yeah, on Earth itself. And just, you know, we think of Earth, even like shot from space, we're thinking, oh, think about all those cities that are there, think about all that stuff. But, you know, you go back to the Dawn of Man and of course there's nothing. So if you can think of the complete like epic nothingness that they put in this movie of like just shots of nothing and you're like, wow, man, really, the earth was completely nothing. There was nothing there, but blows my mind. I was blown away by just thinking about that. And that's what Kubrick's going for. Right. He wants you to think about stuff by showing it to you in a new way and you don't even go in thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to think I'm going to be confronted with the nothingness of earth, but there's nothing there. Yeah. And you come out of it going, oh my God, there was nothing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's interesting. So, you know, we, obviously we're going somewhere with this 
with these character with these Dawn of Men characters, right? We're leading to the moment where he realizes the monolith shows up and teaches him weaponry. Or gives him the or implants the idea of like or just implants the smarts. We don't know exactly what they or like, monolith gives them. It's an uplift phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's interesting at the start how like how nothing the 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 Dawn of Men are. You know what I mean? There's they're they're hiding in crevices from mm-hmm. other animals. They're you know one other tribe of 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 what, do I, what am I calling them apes? One other tribe of of early man comes and takes over their watering watering hole, and all they do is screech at each other, mm-hmm. which is funny because they're scaring the other other tribe or they're trying to scare each other. But like there's nothing to back up that because they haven't developed violence yet or they haven't I, fought I, yet or like so one of the the things that happened this is still true today is that people cannot kill each other right because if i start beating you up i'm injuring myself as i proceed mm-hmm. and at some point i just can't keep hitting you mm-hmm. enough to keep hurting you cuz i i hurt myself yeah and so most creatures cannot fight each other to the death because they're using their own bodies as weapons. Okay. And so it's the invention of the bone, the lever, the, the club mm-hmm. that I'm going to hit you with that allows me to not hurt myself while I'm hurting you. But in that beginning scene, all they can do, I mean, they, they, could, they could have gotten into it. Yeah. But they would have each hurt each other. And, yeah. And once the one side realized we're outnumbered, there's no point in getting into that. Why, why, why get hurt? Yeah. We're just going to lose anyway. So we may as well just back off. And... I was also thinking, and of course, you know, again, we're being confronted with stuff. And so you have to think about these things. But I was also thinking about how just boring life would be. You know, and I mean, I thought about this and even just in the 1800s. Yeah, you're going to be, you know, doing your farm tilling and you're going to be. But it could be very routine. It's going to yes. be the same and, and kind of never change. Yes, exactly. And you'll have the sense that this is how they did it in biblical times. Yes, yeah, I mean, for year, thousands of years, you know, men has been on the field tilling or they've been, and it's just all been the same Z. And so, you know, to think that there were no podcasts, to think that there was no TV, no radio, no anything, like to pass the time, it was just a lot of, and of course, you know, their brains are smaller too, right? So they don't have necessarily the, as far as we know, the, uh, <laughs> the thought of like, oh, I'm bored or, you know what I mean? It's kind of like a dog. Like, a, I mean, I guess dogs get bored, but. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the, the real uh, shift in brain size happens after the australopithecines, mm-hmm. and it's the thing that makes the genus Homo the genus Homo. Yeah. Is, is that our brains get big? You mean the genus becomes a genius? <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, so we, got, we also we can think about, again, how beautifully this show is shot. Obviously, they have a bigger budget, so that helps. But we compare to what we see in, not only in most other, like on TV, which is where I was going with this, but what we see in even just other movies. Let's stop and talk about other movies. Okay. So, other science fiction movies up till this point would have been flying saucers, hanging on a wire, Mm -hmm. spinning with fancy lights. Yeah. It would have been spacemen. It would have been lizards. Yeah. You know, it's, We're talking the day the Earth stood still. We're talking War of the Worlds, even. It's B movies. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, B-movies. Nothing serious, nothing straight, nothing hard science, sci-fi like we talk about. Nothing artsy, for, yeah. for sure. Sometimes there are interesting ideas that lurk behind it. There's certainly stuff that's worth watching, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be high-budget, right? artsy, interesting. You've got some kind of artsy, high-concept stuff going back to Metropolis mm-hmm. and yep. some early stuff, but but from the 50s and the 60s, Science fiction is a B-movie genre. Yeah. Yep. I was thinking, too, about, you know, just how they use the backing shots on mm-hmm. these and how in the pilot for Star Trek, where in the cage, we got a lot more of those, like, painted... Yeah, like that famous city scene. Right, exactly. The one that's in a lot of the credits. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot more of those painted backgrounds where either they land in front of it or they blah, 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 which they quickly got away from because they couldn't afford to do a new one every week. So instead we get a lot of, like... Lighting. <laughs> lighting, yeah. Which is even harder in seasons one and two of Next Generation. You know what I'm talking about. But even in, in 60s television, it almost like, okay, well, it makes sense. But and then you see it in, the, in... It looks so much like a stage to me in Next Generation, those first couple seasons. You're like, oh... Oh, it's, it's very much a stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think they did a little bit better of. Maybe their stage was bigger. I don't know. I think they did a little bit better. But uh, yeah, it's still lighting colors. You know, you don't see clouds in the sky. You don't see any of that stuff on uh, on the the original series. Not unless they're on a near Earth planet. Exactly. Or on this, the uh, back lot of Mayberry. Going back to our point where we don't have weapons yet. There's a leopard attack that mm-hmm. happens in there. They can't fight off the leopard. You know, the, he almost just takes it, you know, when that leopard attacks. That's crazy. Another point about that leopard is that was a real leopard. <laughs> it was a real leopard, and that was a stuntman in the suit who just took the leopard attack. It's crazy. Obviously, nobody was hurt. Nobody died, but still, it's amazing. Bob, we want to pay you to be attacked by a leopard. Exactly. You'll get to wear a suit. <laughs> get to wear an ape suit. Hope it protects you. Good luck. Um... Then one morning, to a course of music, they wake up, they see the monolith, the monolith, they're kind of afraid to touch it, but then they all touch it. I think the key thing there is curiosity. Yeah. Right? Not touching it with aggression, they're touching with curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I I get the feeling that curiosity is the thing that unlocks the potential that the monolith provides. Yes. Yeah. Because we get that later. Once we get to the moon, he touches it again, and it's not right away. But then we get the ear-piercing thing that sends a message to Jupiter. Although, I don't know if we find that out in this movie or not. That it goes to Jupiter? Yeah. Yeah, because it's a, the, the whole thing they're going to do there. They mentioned that at the beginning of the interview stuff with BBC. And... No, because that's the top-secret part of the mission. Yeah, Remember? so it's in part three that we talk about Jupiter. Those three guys are... are the three guys who are in the sleep and the yeah. and Yeah, but we don't get that we don't get the like the final debrief about the about the sending the signal to Jupiter and We only know they're going to Jupiter. Yes, exactly. We don't know they don't know why. They don't know that the signal the I think that happens in the debrief that he finds after he knocks out Hal. Right. Um what else do I got in my notes here? Uh, we get that shot that you pointed out, the 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 alignment of the monolith, the Earth and the Moon. Yeah, so the movie starts, we're getting 
thus spoke Zarathustra, yep. we get the, the, the moon. And I'm going to note that the moon was oddly blue throughout the whole movie. Yeah. And of course, nobody had been to the moon, they hadn't seen the moon, they didn't take pictures of the moon. And I think they were guessing that the Earth would cast a blue glow. Yeah. And so they made the moon blue. I'm not sure why the moon's blue. It looks weird. The moon is definitely blue. But the first one is the is the moon. Oh, and that's right. The Earth rises above it, and then the sun rises and behind. The sun rises behind. And you get this this parallelism. Right. And then we get the monolith, and then the moon, or yeah. then. Yeah. The, yeah. The sun. We're on the Earth. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Then, of course, we get the most famous transition in probably all of film. Once he discovers the bone, and he starts beating up the skeleton with the bone. He throws the bone in the air, and then it turns into a satellite. <clears throat> Arthur C. Clarke said that that was supposed to be a weapon. It was supposed to be like, aha, one weapon to another weapon. It's not made real clear in the movie. But then hearing that, you're like, oh, that makes sense. It's some kind of space weapons. And of course, it turns out that the last episode that we talked about uh, with Gary Seven, Seven yeah. uh, was about putting such weapons into space. Oh, which, that's true. Which was prevented... Uh, <laughs> shortly before this by a treaty yeah. oh really oh that's right that's right yeah but uh, the idea that you know, the world is surrounded by nuclear weapons in space is so here's where we get really some of the most amazing visual effects and the visual effects are so good that they still hold up they're so you still look at them and believe that it, that's a ship in space that that's a you know it's not like you were saying a, a thing on a wire <laughs> Um, you know, they really took took time to make sure that the models were so detailed that they could go in close on them, which is amazing. Um, you know, there's that simple the, the the floating pen that she picks up out of the air and puts into puts back into Haywood Floyd's pocket. You know, that was just a, a double sided tape on a pen that they put on a pink glass, and then they just adjusted the glass to make it look like it was floating, and then she just pulled the you can even see her, I watched it again, you can even see her just like it right off and then put it in his pocket. But still, you know, the, it, it's amazing. Obviously, they had no choice, so everything was practical effects. But it's amazing how they figured out how to make it work. Yeah, you, you have seen those pictures of the Enterprise. And the Enterprise physical model was very large. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the kind of thing you put in a pickup truck to move it around. Yeah. And so... When movie studios would do something like this, the physical model they would build would be big. Yeah. So that they could go close. So that it could have fine details. So that it would be more than a strange thing hanging from the wires yeah. with weird lights on it. Well, and, and as we'll see in the next generation, or not next generation, but in the motion picture, we do a quite a flyby of the Enterprise. And Lasts a good 10 minutes, I think. Yeah. They, they built a new model and they want you to see it. They yeah, want that's you right. to appreciate it. That's right. And they think that you will because of the time that we're going to spend in 2001 just looking at that Pan Am shuttle, mm -hmm. looking at the orbital station, yep. looking at the moon base. We spend a lot of time looking at stuff. Yeah, we sure do. And I think that that's part of what really, for me, drives the movie. And it's the section I got written down next, which is what you perfectly i didn't know what to call it but you perfectly called it retrofuturism which is this idea of like what did people in the past think the future was going to look like and what's amazing about this movie is just how like perfectly they nailed it now the question is of course are we pushing 
as we know with Star Trek, right? With Star Trek that we, you know, people are trying to create. Well, we've got communicators now. They're cell phones. But, you know, people are trying to create. Um, Tablets. Ta- yeah, tablets, right? Pads that you can put into computers, right? Exactly. You know, people are looking into warp speed. People are looking into transporters. People are looking into all these the things. tricorder, the tricorder, right? <clears throat> so these are all things that you know have come about thanks to Star Trek. But we can also look at this and be like, well, did they have that idea first, and then somebody saw that and go, hmm, we should try and make that a thing. One of the things which I think is just the simplest, but it was amazing that they thought of it, was just the TV that he's watching on the back of a, on the back of the other chair in front of him on that pan am flight and you're like yeah that's it now we have all those every every flight you go on now there's a tv there you can put money in and watch movies or watch the news or whatever that's amazing um we love to point out that there was the hilton on the moon mm-hmm. the howard johnson's uh ma bell pan am as you've mentioned now of course some of those haven't quite made it that far well this is the the fallacy that we see it it's often described as the uh the Harrison Ford movie with the synths. Blade Runner. The Blade Runner fallacy. Mm-hmm. Blade Runner shows you a bunch of co- corporate logos, much yep. of which don't exist anymore. Yep. And it's the idea of companies that are big now will be the companies that are big later. Yeah. That Ma Bell won't get broken up. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, since they go to space. Yeah. That uh, Howard Johnson's would continue to be the kind of hotel chain that would be in an orbital station rather than... Yeah. Uh, uh, the most decrepit part of the highway exit. <laughs> now that I thought the Hilton was yeah, perfectly reasonable. Yeah, exactly. That still works. So we get to the we get to the moon and we get to uh we get Haywood Floyd, we meet him. So it's funny because I think it's hard for me to know, you know, cuz I was 11 at this point. But that movie 2010 the sequel, the sequel to this movie that had nothing to do with Stanley Kubrick came out. And I know that we went to go see it. But I don't know that if I watched this movie before or after I saw that one. So I think, But I think that a lot of... Because I watched that... I'd watched 2010 a lot. But I think I watched 2010 a lot because I was trying to make sense of 2001 for my you know puny little 11-year-old brain. So um, a, a, unfortunately for me, a lot of what I... Uh, answers that i have in this for this movie are because of that movie which maybe like never gave me the chance to really ponder you know "Mm, what does this really mean when suddenly i have answers because of 2010 we might talk about that a little bit later but at this point we meet hayward hayward floyd uh in this movie and in 2010 he was played by roy schneider so very different kier duella is in 2010 and plays plays dave bowman as a sort of ethereal character, but he's in the suit and everything. He plays, he plays it straight on. So it's interesting that they could have gotten, and his name's escaping me and I didn't write it down, but the guy who played it in this one, I mean, it was only 14 years later, so he could have looked like it was 10 years in the future. It's interesting they didn't go with that choice. One thing I did see pointed out in a comparison between 2001 and 2010 is uh, 2010 is very, a very human story. Mm-hmm. Whereas 2001 almost keeps humanity at bay. You know what I mean? You're not looking into like, oh, what's Haywood thinking at this point? Mm, what's Dave going through? What's, you know, blah, blah. It's a very, like, antiseptic view of, of those characters. Yeah, so on the one hand, like, they're all about business. Mm-hmm. Um, you get a sense that the astronauts are 
come out of the kind of military tradition because of the way that you know the guys talk to them. Yeah. And so they're, and and you think about like when emer- when things went wrong in the Apollo project, those astronauts sounded cool. Yeah. Right. Now I think we get a sense when we watch the movie Apollo thirteen that some of that was for our benefit. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, they were trained to be cool, so they could they could pull that off when they needed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think that's part of it. But I also think that we're getting a sense of like the like Hal has feelings. Hal gets upset. Yeah. Hal has a voice that that modulates mm-hmm. as though he's got more emotion, whereas uh, you know the two guys don't. Yeah. Hey, when I mean, talks like a normal person. Yeah. I saw an interview uh, uh, t- in two thousand with Kirduella, who was like, "Yeah, a lot of people say that Hal is probably the main character of the movie." I'll accept that. <laughs> it was really funny. So, well, he's the one with the arc. Yes, exactly. This is where I started to realize that there's a lot of world building going on in this, and it's part of it is due to this meeting, right? Which is again very interesting. A few episodes ago, we were talking about in Omega Glory how one of the things that I don't love is world building, and how like once I've watched the episode, then I can go back and watch the world building. I mean, I kind of have to for the show, obviously. But it's funny because, obviously, there's a lot of world building going on in this section, right? This section where we're on the moon. We are building not only the conflict between the Americans and the Russians, which, of course, was going on at the time. But there's all this mundane stuff. How do you eat? How do you use the toilet? Yeah. How would you make a phone call? What would that be like? Mm Mm-hmm. And of course, really, there should be some time delay. The only time they mention the time delay is when they're doing the Jupiter thing. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know what that orbital station is, but he should have a two or three minute delay mm-hmm. when he's talking well, to they his say daughter. seven minutes well, that's in to the Jupiter. Moon. No, that's Jupiter. Yeah, but I mean, I think properly the moon is seven minutes. Oh, to the moon. Got yeah. it. Now, those guys, now they may have better radios and science fiction. Yeah. Although, I don't know how you're going faster than. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, so these these things are limited by, by you know, light. And, mm-hmm. But there should have been a delay. I mean, he's having a normal conversation with the little girl. Right. And I'd have to imagine, even if he's done this before, disconcerting for a child to have like that delay. And she looked like she was ready to kind of wander off at any <laughs> yeah. <point> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love that. I love that. Yeah. That's actually Kubrick's daughter. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. And that was also very, like, lynching to me. Is like, let's mm-hmm. just take, uh, you know, this character, which was the girl, little girl, in a real-world situation, you know what I mean? And just, like, watch what she would really do. And would you, know, would, would you like, like to be in Daddy's movie? I want you to play a little girl who's going to have a birthday. Yeah. But her dad's not going to be there. And she's just fidgeting, and she's doing you know yeah. all the things that little kids do. All the things, yeah. It's great. It looked very, very realistic in that sense, and that's one of the things that's that's so typical of this movie is the mundane stuff mm-hmm. is spot on. Yeah, and there's so much mundane stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of joking earlier about how the movie is man is walking, man is walking, man is still walking. Yeah, man is now walking and passing you know a, a thing. Another crew member. <laughs> yep. Oh, there's the Hojo. Oh, okay. There's a Hilton now. Oh, he's going to stop in a phone booth. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like little follow- of just following people to and from places. And, and you see these details, whether it's the woman who's bringing the tray and she makes that turn and walks up upside down and yep. down a different hallway, or the woman comes out and gets the pen to show us weightlessness. Mm-hmm. Or... So this all this world building, of course, it's fascinating, but I've seen the movie before too. And so I want to know more of what's happening in the world. I want to understand like, okay, what does this mean? And why do we do it? And, you know, it's even in that little conversation he has with the Russian, you know, what you were saying, he's like, that guy's not a doctor, that guy's a spy. <laughs> you know, all of that stuff is is now fascinating to me because of I, because of the rest of the world that I was totally engaged in. You know, what happens to Hal? What happens on in Jupiter, to Jupiter, all of that stuff, fascinating to me. <clears throat> Which again, we've talked about how much I don't like it, but yeah, here I am eating, it, it, all, eating yeah. it all up. Um, but I'm already invested because I've seen the movie before, so that I doesn't I also help. think that it was done really, really well. Yes. So, you know, there's a certain sense in which, let's take music, that you know, if there's a genre of music you don't like, there's probably one or two songs that, that you do enjoy because they're really well done. Yep. Um, you know, to go on and talk about the mundane, it's, but the mon- mundane is shot so well mm-hmm. that you're like, uh, I'm interested, I'm looking, it's, it's, it's amazing. You know, like, there, it takes forever for them to land on the moon, right? Once we leave the, the Hilton and everything, and, and he takes the, the other shuttle out, and the shuttle's landing. I love on how the he moon. slept on both of those trips. <laughs> yeah, I did, that was great. Um, but, you know, we get two minutes of the landing, and we see how he lands. We see that little, like, the computer screen that, you know, is, like, showing, like, this is where you're going to land. Land it perfectly. Adjust this way. Adjust this way. And you land. And then he lands. And so we get, you know, minutes of that. That we get, a, you know, a few more minutes of the of just the scientists walking up to where the monolith is. And they're kind of just standing there looking at the monolith. Then they go down the stairs to the monolith. Like, it's just, like... Again, it's like you say, a lot of just the mundane of people walking and doing things, and yet the way it's shot, the way it looks, the way, you know, we're all intrigued to what's happening. And it's funny, so, you know, a part of the world building is, is like, there's a rumor going around that it's an epidemic, the Russian says that, and then, you know, he has that debriefing where he says like, hey, sorry, I hope, you know, I hope you you feel okay about your parent, you know, your family, your friends, your parents, all thinking that like this epidemic could be bad for you and blah blah blah. But we don't know how this connects to the beginning of the movie yet. You know what I mean? We've gone okay, so or if it connects, yes, exactly. You know, so it's so weird. We get that transition, and we're like, okay, so we obviously this much time has passed, and we've become this technologically, you know, advanced because of the bone and whatnot, and then we're kind of kind of moving along and we're like okay now what's happening on the moon okay what's happening okay where are they going and it isn't until they get to the monolith where you're like oh oh another monolith another monolith this really connects and then we see the scene where they're taking the photograph and then you know the piercing noise happens which we find out later was the transmission transition transmission to jupiter i think it's interesting that so like we watch it and it's retro futurism Right. Right. Oh, this is what they thought the future would be like. Well, this is not 2001, because it's 2021. Yeah. And we are not doing regular shuttles to the moon base. Yeah. To them, it was futurism. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid having books about what the future would be like, how telephones would not just be audio, but there'd be a visual part. Yeah. 
And you can see advertisements from the 70s. Yeah. Which, you know, promise that video phones are not that far away. In a lot of ways, we have the capacity to do video phone. In some sense, what we normally do together is a kind of video phone. Yes, exactly. Zooming and That's not normally how we talk to each other. Yeah. Interestingly, probably the most... The way we've actually gone is more texting. Yeah. Yeah, there's way more texting. And not even talking. Yeah. And so really, he should be like, he gets to the station and he texts. Arrived on station... You know, and yeah. like his little girl would get a beep, beep, beep. Oh, daddy, you coming to my birthday party? And it's like all misspelled. <laughs> it's full of emojis and, you know. And he's like, uh, no. And he writes back in plain English, no, baby, I got, you know, uh, yeah. work. I'm traveling for work. But, you know, I can get you something. What would you like? And, you know, and she's got pictures and, you know, like she's sending him gifts. And <laughs> that's what it would really be like. And that is. That's true. Yeah, we've gone away from video and more towards... Not even talking to people, just texting. That's interesting. Um, You know, it's funny because uh, obviously, you know, like you can talk about, you can say what happens in the first half hour of the film. Just, you know, the dawn of man scene, right? You could talk about that and in 30 seconds tell the whole plot and literally everything that happens. And that's, and then it might take two minutes, but you can, in two minutes, you can name everything that happens in the next half hour to 45 minutes of the movie on the moon, right? It's so much of that, nothing is happening. And yet I'm totally engaged as opposed to times when we get to like, those times where I'm like, boy, this could really use a second storyline because nothing is happening. We're just standing around talking about blah. You know what I mean? And maybe it's the because it's the dialogue and because it's not the, you know, it's not these visually stunning shots of them standing around the Enterprise or whatever. Well, you know, one of the things I think that is... You know, and we'll talk about this again, I'm sure, when we get to the motion picture. But 2001 isn't really about anything except the ideas. Yes. Right? So it's going to make you think. It's, it's, it's leveraging your fridge logic. Yes. You walk away and go, oh, man. And then, like, who put those monoliths? And the, the motion picture is an adventure story. Mm-hmm. In many ways, it shares a lot of commonalities with 2001. You've got this other intelligence. You have the, the creatures who basically transform to uh, interact with it. Right. You've got all these things. But it's, a, it's an adventure story, and we, we do expect a little more action, things to plot, things yes. going on in the motion picture than we get it is a little too artsy for its own good yeah because of the kind of story it is and I think that's why Kubrick gets away with it mm-hmm. because he's really making a think piece which successfully makes you think if yeah. it didn't make you think you'd get bored yeah it'd but be slowly be- plotting but because he's making you think about stuff yeah you're noticing uh, details and going well that's interesting mm-hmm. if it wasn't it, and that, that may be it it's interesting it's not entertaining it's not engaging yeah it's interesting. So it's interesting because from here we get all the house stuff happens, right? Mm-hmm. We get the entire, we'll go back and cover it, but I'm just saying for now, we, if we skip all the way over all of the house stuff that happens, which is a lot and is a bit of, t- you know, it's another four, 30 minutes probably of storyline. Um, it isn't until the end of that that we again get something about the monolith. So we go through all of this other stuff and we're like, is this part even connected? Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I don't know. I guess this part is connected. Until suddenly, the whole rest of the movie is all about the monolith. What does the monolith mean? What are we doing? Is this the next blah, blah, blah. We'll get to all that at the end. But that's interesting, too, that it's like there are these connections. It's all connected. We just don't know. You just kind of have to trust it and move on. You know, um, I saw a uh, review by Roger, e Roger Ebert. He went to the premiere where, uh, apocryphally, probably, Rock Hudson got up in the middle of the movie and was like, what the hell's going on in this movie? And walks out. Mm -hmm. uh, I think 240 people walked out of the premiere. Really? Yeah, something really big like that. So, <clears throat> so I'll get into this. Because it's not like art films weren't a thing. Yeah. But yeah, no, so, so many people were lost. But, you know, Roger Ebert stuck it out. Obviously, it was also his job. Right. But, you know, he but was like... he's probably also familiar with art films. Yes, exactly. And he's like, I've seen some art films. I can sit through this one. Yeah. Hey, this one's kind of interesting. Yeah. As opposed to some of the other ones he saw that were probably like, yeah, just mm -hmm. art for art's sake, a little pretentious, a little, nothing really going on. Yeah. So he, you know, he says at the end of his review of like, for those people who stuck around, man, did they see something. They, yeah. You know, they, it was it was quite amazing. So... Um, you know, the, of course, you had your theater critics who are not theater critics. You had your movie critics who loved it. You also had your movie critics who didn't get it. And after about the first, almost the first month, MGM was ready to pull it. And then all of a sudden, um, it started attracting the hippies mm -hmm. who would come in, watch the first half of the movie, and then at the intermission would pop acid so that by the time we get to the Jupiter Corridor, their trip involves... <laughs> and they're watching the end and it becomes this whole psychedelic thing um i did look it up i'm going to look it up again which i know is fascinating podcasting but um the rotten tomato score for i think um it was seven oh it was not 79 it was 92 percent so i think we probably got some selection bias in there oh i'm not online silly me but anyway yes go on so I think there's probably some selection bias. The people who sit through 2001 these days and then choose to go on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, that's it. based on, that was based on reviews at the time. Right. But I mean, who's sitting through? Yeah. It, so we all know what 2001 is. True. By now. Yeah. Nobody is stumbling on it. Going, <laughs> hmm, I wonder what this is. Oh my goodness. It's so slow. I don't know. I bet there's a lot of YouTube, <laughs> YouTube uh, reaction videos that'll tell you differently. <laughs> Well, I'd, those people are like doing it to do it, though. Yeah. Right. Someone has set them up. That's true. Hey, you should watch 2001 Review That. Like, okay. Yeah. We got, got a, lot of, like, a lot of people say I should watch this movie. What the I hell is it? it? I don't understand <laughs> it. Because right. the proper way to approach 2001 is not to go into it blind. Yeah. Right? It's to understand one, it's a think piece, it's an art piece. Yeah. And it's slow paced. When you understand that, and maybe you even get some hints about what it's about, mm -hmm. and then you watch it and you're like, oh, wow, this is interesting. I think if you stumble on it and you think you're going to watch, well, should I watch Hooch? Or <laughs> 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 <Well>, in 2001? <laughs> Turn you are, Hooch, yeah. You are yeah. not, not going to be a happy camper because it's not going to meet your expectations. Yeah. If your expectations are it's a slow art piece, it's a think piece, yeah. then, then when you sit down to watch it, you're ready for that. Yeah. If you mistake it for something else, it's going to be rockets and 
spacemen and lasers. Yeah. No. Nope. Yeah. Um, there are, as we've talked, since everything is practical, because there was no digital back in the day, there are some shots that I could even watch and be like, I'm not exactly sure how they got these shots. Um, there's a shot where Frank is walking around doing something in mm -hmm. another room, and you see Dave is down in the bottom corner of the screen, and then he, you know, he just gets himself put in a chair. And you're like, how, how did they shoot that scene? Like... It, I mean, if you think if you think really hard about it, you can probably figure it out. But it's just amazing that, like, when you first watch it, you're like, I don't know how they even did that. You because know? the gravity should be different at different parts of the ship. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. And the shot seems to take that into consideration. Yeah, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. Uh, all the practical practical stuff in this movie is fantastic. <clears throat> also, stuff happened way faster in this movie than I remembered it. Mm -hmm. Like we got through that like Dawn of Ape scene. You know, it's like a half hour or something, and I was like, wow. Yeah. But you know, and of course we know that time as an adult and time as a kid is very different, right? So if you watch a movie as a kid and you're like, oh my God, why are we still on these stupid apes? And part of it, I think, is the expectations. As a yeah. kid, you just cannot expect enough that this is an art piece, a think piece. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a slow burn. Mm -hmm. Wait for it. You'll get it. Right. Because you just don't have the patience for that. Yeah. No matter how many marshmallows you can leave on the table. But you know, once you're... You're basically 50 years old. Yeah. Your, your ability to sit through something that's actually interesting, that's dense, and the more you watch it, the more you get out of it. Yeah. You can appreciate that. Kids, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to appreciate that. The more you watch it, the more you get out of it. Yeah. No, absolutely. But uh, that was great. Um, and it is a movie that's meant to be rewatched, which is an odd thing to do in 1968, 69. Right, without home video, without uh, you know streaming services, without any of that stuff. Because it is so dense, there's no way you could get out all that you need to get out of it in a it, single viewing. In a single viewing, yeah. And here I write, it's fascinating to think about someone in the 60s who doesn't have knowledge of movies we do these days, right? Um, the to be, I mean, you people must have been blown away. Like, I mean, obviously there were people who thought it was long and boring and blah blah blah. But seeing those visual effects, how could you not go into that movie and just be like, how did they make this? Like, did they go to space and shoot this? You yeah. know what I mean? In the sixties, it would just be you, you. People had to. Some people had to have been blown away. Those shots of the planet when they're close to Jupiter. And I, I think that this is part of the reason that you could have a we faked the moon landing mm. conspiracy theory. Yeah. Is you see something like this and you're like, they could do anything. Yep. They could think all that stuff. Except that the moon is not blue, so. <laughs> and when you see Earth from the moon, it is not a vaguely pea soup colored ball. Yeah. It you see the continents and the clouds yeah. and Ken was really bothered by the, the Earth in we've, this movie. So we've talked about this a lot in Yeah, that's true. Yeah. In the original Star Trek, the way it was actually shot is they didn't know what planets looked like and they tended to make them vaguely homogenous colored balls. Yeah. And that is not what they look like. Nope. And when they remastered Star Trek, they went back and made planets look like real planets. They look so much better now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But of course Kubrick didn't know what Yeah. I mean, we had gone When they started space. shooting. Yeah, when they started we, shooting. We'd been in orbit. We had taken pictures from high orbit, but we hadn't seen pictures from the moon yet. Yeah. And we could go, oh, I can see Florida, that's Argentina, and right. like, you know, that's even Madagascar. This is, this is amazing. Instead, you know, they're thinking, well, I guess it's 
just a big bomb of pea soup. Yeah. Well, you know, so I know that Douglas Trumbull said that he went there expecting to be there for six months and ended up being there for three years. So if you think that that was 1965 mm-hmm. when they started doing special the visual effects and started creating all of the images and all that kind of stuff, yeah, we probably hadn't been up there taking pictures for very long. It's crazy. And those pictures were, were close. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way that you you get you get up like this and you take a yeah. picture, you're like, I'm getting a different sense of you than yes, I do. Yes, exactly. Back you look like you have one eye. Yeah, <laughs> there's stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So it's funny because I do make jokes a lot about like we're just like watching other movies. Not so much Star Trek. It doesn't really happen in Star Trek. But how like sometimes you'll watch a movie and you're just watching things happen. You know what I mean? And you're just like, wow, that's, there you go. Another thing's happening. You don't know why. It's not character-driven. It's not right. whatever. And you're just like, wow, blah, blah. And, but that is a lot of this movie, as we've discussed. It is just a lot of watching things happen. It's a lot of people walking down corridors. It's a lot the, of people the difference is, you know, eating. A lot of those movies, <laughs> you know, like it's a Michael Bay movie. Right. The stuff is happening just to be visually pretty. Yeah. Explosion. Yeah. People doing amazing stunts. True. Oh, that's so cool. Check. Oh, my God. Is is that a, a battleship on a tidal wave? Whoa, that's so cool. And it doesn't make any sense, and nothing really connects to each other. And you're like, why, why was that battleship sideways? What, yeah. what was the point of that? And in this, there's a point to everything. Mm-hmm. And instead of being visually exciting, it is visually interesting, but it's not exciting. Yeah. And so... You watch stuff. If you, if you're open to it, you'll think about stuff, and it's a a different kind of things. Just keep happening. You're watching yeah. one thing after another. Yeah, and again, the visuals just are captivating. And I think you you want a good balance of those. I mean, if you're if you're making because uh, you know I don't think you necessarily have to turn. You don't want to turn the motion picture into a Michael Bay picture, right? Because we don't think those are terribly good movies. Right. Although they're fun to watch. Yes. But they're like eating candy. You, and you walk away from it and there's nothing. It's just like cotton candy. It's a film. It's, you know, it, it tastes good in your mouth and then it's gone. Whereas this is, it'll, it'll stick with you a long, long time. Even though while you're watching it, sometimes you're like, what am I even looking at? Yeah. <clears throat> and for something like the motion picture, you want a mix of that. Uh, especially because we know Roddenberry wanted to be cerebral. He likes right. cerebral track. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as we are transitioning here into the third season, one of the things that we'll see is that Roddenberry's notes are cut the humor. Yep. It makes cerebral Star Trek. Yep. And, you know, so what he wasn't doing to make it as cerebral as he wanted it to be, because it, it's more like what he, you know, Sometimes Roddenberry would be like, make it cerebral, as opposed to like actually making it cerebral. Right. It's not, that can't be a stage direction. Yeah. And if the motion picture had been layered with more, more stuff going on, mm-hmm. in the sense of, uh, what is this probe? Who sent it? Oh my God, we sent it. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. That could be some deep stuff. You could have made this Kubrickian if you... Yeah, had the skill. I don't think they spent the time or had the skill. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, they could have made it more action adventure too. Mm-hmm. I think that was a hard move for Roddenberry. Yeah. Right? He didn't want to make an action adventure movie. He wanted to make two thousand one. Yeah, he did. 
and he wanted it, you know, that this monolith, his monolith, V'ger, would, yep. would have, like, we sent it to ourselves. We did it to ourselves. Right. And that's all cool. That's very interesting. Yep. And I, you could have made it deep on various levels in which they slowly unravel that piece of information in the same way that we start with this monolith and then yep. we, we have this mission and we don't know what what did they discover finally at the end there's a reveal that they found another monolith and then yeah you realize that the monolith is responsible for all these development and yeah you could have had that kind of V'ger experience which at some point they realize this was our probe mm-hmm. it's come back and that could be amazing and I still think I enjoy the motion picture yeah and I I I'm not bothered by how slow it is, in part because I like pictures of the Enterprise. All of my computers at home have pictures of the Enterprise. I, That's I, fair. My phone has a picture of the Enterprise. Right. And so, you know, spending a few minutes giving me beauty shots of different the Enterprise from different angles is something I will sit and watch. That's funny. And I also don't mind, you know, the kind of, let's walk around the Enterprise. How do I get coffee? How, how do the elevators work? Right. You know, what is, what is the carpeting like? Uh, uh, you know, how do the decks work? This is kind of interesting stuff for me. And I am not necessarily the typical, the typical viewer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do get this, like I think in a lot of ways, uh, The Undiscovered Country and The Wrath of Khan are the perfect Star Trek movies. There's enough intellectual content mm-hmm. that it's Star Trek. Yep. That it's not just pulp and there's enough action to keep any audience uh, yeah. viewer engaged yeah those are the recipes for good stuff and i can certainly come up with more non-villain driven trek yeah um which i would have done if i was making the movies if they called me up hey hey ken let's yeah we, we saw that uh, that uh podcast you did <laughs> we'd like to bring you back in time and make some movies bring you back in time but uh, combining the intellectualism and the action adventure that we yeah. associate with Star Trek is, is, is hard. Yeah. It's, a, it's hard to get that, that mix correct. I do love six. I do love six. Here's another thing I point. As we uh, sit here talking, it is uh, the Olympics are on, and uh, we've been watching some curling. And, you know, one of the things I always say about, like, watching curling is, is it's one of those things I feel like I could actually do. Right? Like, I'm not going to do a ski jump. I'm not going to slalom down at any speed. Uh, I would like to try at least, but I, I'm not going to do it at the speeds they're going. You know, quadruple axles. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, right. I'm not going to be doing any uh, speed skating. I'm not going to be doing any figure skating. It's just not happening. But curling, I feel like, man, I feel like I could really do that. With that said, I think that that's one of the things that probably blew people in the 60s minds, right? Is how just it felt so realistic, right? Those shots of of Dave walking around Discovery with, uh, you know, the breathing and the hissing of, of the air being blown into his suit. You know, those, that's what it would feel like. That's what it would really feel like, right? It's not going to be, as much as I love it, it's not going to be Star Wars. It's, you're not going to hear, you know, dun, 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 every time Vader walks through your corridor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's going to be clank, 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 clank. You know, it's going to be the breathing of the thing. So I think that that's also one of those things 
you know, that, that just must have blown people's minds. It's like, yeah, this is probably would be like, it would be that lonely. Yeah, they, they had know? technical advisors. Mm-hmm. They spent a lot of time thinking about what would this yeah. be like? How do we film it? How, how do we show it to you? Yes. So the NASA guys, the scientists told us what it would be like and they blew our minds. Yep. How do we blow your minds visually? Yeah, so, you know, continuing on, some of the things they predicted were just those banks of monitors that were on the ship. You know what I mean? Like TVs, think about what TVs were in the 60s. And then just to think that they were going to have to be able to have a flat screen with the TV on it. And you know, they, they had little iPads, too. And they had the iPads they watched the news report on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of that stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The predictions, man. So what was it? What, uh, so what happened to Hal? What's your opinion on what happened to Hal? So Why does Hal break down? Um, the, the version I find most plausible is okay. that, is that Hal was programmed to be a servant. He's there to help. He's mm-hmm. there to be useful. And because of this mission, Hal was told to keep the secret. Mm-hmm. Hal could not keep the secret. Yeah. And when, and Hal's difficulty in keeping the secret, especially when, uh, so he's talking to Dave and about the secret. Yep. And... It's obvious that he's caught him. I know you're you're playing with me. Now he guesses wrong. This is a psychological profile, isn't it? And then I think what Hal does is uh, Hal's like he tries to change the subject. Yeah. Oh look, this antenna's broken. Don't worry about what I've just been talking about. Yeah. The, the secret I'm not supposed to tell you. Yeah. Instead, let's pay attention to this uh, antenna. It's broken. Uh, it's not broken, Hal. I'm, I'm in a conundrum. Now I've lied to you, and you've caught me in a lie twice, and I can't come clean because I have a secret that I cannot tell you. Yep. And I'm programmed in such a way that I cannot tell you. Yeah. I can't just go... It turns out that the reason for the mission is the reason I've been acting weird. So i got to keep a secret from you guys, and I'm having difficult to do that because I am not a lying robot. Yep. But bear with me. Because in 31 days, I will be able to reveal the secret. Yep. Sorry. So that's what they say in 2010. That's the re- that's what they end up saying. So, yeah, you nailed it. Well, I haven't, I haven't seen 2010. Oh, okay. But I have probably received through osmosis. <laughs> Very possible. Very the possible. The 2010 analysis. Yes. So let's see. We get that great shot of Frank and Dave talking in the in the pod right so it's interesting let's uh, i'm going to back up just a little bit uh, hal gets a mess or not hal dave gets a message from his uh folks for mm-hmm. his birthday and he's on the bed right and he's like hal move the bed hal give me a little more support on my you know on my head so i get the pillow blah blah okay hal remove the pillow i don't need it anymore you know okay slide me over there hal so we see that and then we get into this scene where they're like hal rotate the pod okay okay go ahead and open the the door to the the pod now hal so literally, they're teaching, he, they're teaching us in the movie, Hal runs everything. You got to ask Hal if you want to adjust your pillow. You got to ask Hal if you're, you're going to open, blah, blah. So that becomes important. Hal, the next make scene. the ink come out of the pen. Yes, exactly. Hal, make the ink dry. Exactly, please. Hal, make the paper absorb the ink. Right. So, we get, so then they get into the thing. They shut down, they shut down a Hal. And now we have this great shot. Which we think is just a shot for the movie, right? Because we've seen this shot. We saw the shot earlier when um, uh, Haywood was talking to the the Russians, right? The Russians are on both sides, and he's in the middle. The whole focus of that shot is on Haywood, mm-hmm. right? Now we're we're in that a very similar shot 
where we got Frank and we got Dave and they're talking to each other and Hal's in the middle. So it looks like it's just a beautifully framed shot. However, just before intermission, that shot flips and we see Hal is reading their lips. It's an amazing shot. It's an amazing thing because in that moment, you know what's going on and you probably can guess bad things are about to happen. And then we get an intermission, which is crazy that we get an intermission in the middle of this movie, which isn't even that long, right? It's only like well, two and a half hours, I think, or something. But the, the length of the movie? Yeah. Yeah. See, what I think is that they want you, because they're leveraging fridge logic. Mm-hmm. They want you to get up, walk to the concession stand, stand in line for popcorn going, that robot's reading their lips. Yep. That robot knows what they're planning. I wonder what he's going to do. It's not going to be good. Because, you know, they talk about, does Hal feel emotions? Well, Hal's, Hal's pretty complicated, but nobody really knows. I mean, yeah. does he feel emotions? It's hard to say. Well, yes, the answer turns out to be yes. He does not want to be turned off. Not even for the good of the mission. Yeah. And I'm sure at some level he's also bothered by the fact that, like, I can't tell you why I'm doing weird stuff. I'm sure you are right about that. This isn't my fault. And he does blame human error. And in that sense, he's right. You humans program me to do two conflicting things. Yep. You basically set me up with a logic bomb, Captain Kirk. Right. I love it when things happen in movies because somebody does something without thinking. Mm -hmm. So somebody says the wrong thing, which sets off a series of events. Or, in this case, Dave is so freaked out about Frank... He jumps into the pod to go rescue him. And Without his helmet. Doesn't even think of grabbing his helmet, which becomes such a key plot point. And then it's, it's like the construction of this script is so like beautiful in that respect. Well, I think in part he thinks it was an accident. He's not, yeah. he's not necessarily thinking, Hal has screwed us over. No, right, exactly. I need, I need every piece of safety equipment because Hal is no longer on my right. side. Instead he's like, I just got to go out there and Hal will help me do the mission. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's great. And then Hal's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to help you. you. Yeah. Sorry. What does he say? This this, this, uh, this conversation is not worth continuing. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. I love that there are always shots of Hal, like no matter what they're doing, whatever. And this this is set up from the beginning, too, of this, of this section, is that no matter what they're doing, Hal is always watching them. We, sometimes we get a POV shot of Hal. Sometimes we just get a close-up of Hal as they they're do, doing whatever. They do an amazing job giving us a sense of what Hal is feeling, his emotionality. Yeah. With just a shot of an unmoving, unblinking eye. Yeah. Or camera or whatever exactly he is. Yeah. So, I mean, that's impressive. We know what's going on psychologically with Hal. Yep. Without any facial movements, without <laughs> any yeah. kind of... It's amazing. That, yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't thought of that. That is great. Yes. Um, so uh, Dave then goes through the emergency airlock without his helmet, blowing himself into discovery. I saw Arthur C. Clarke talk about this, and he also said that this was uh, this is a little mistake, but is that yes, Dave should have taken a breath, but as soon as he got into the airlock, he should have been slowly exhaling because otherwise his lungs would have exploded. <laughs> so whoops. But that's okay. We'll forgive them for that one. Well, he is a, a an astronaut, kind of at peak performance, one yep. would hope. So if he's... Maybe he's exhaling through his nose. A couple of seconds, yeah. 
Dave then sets out to kill Hal. This is another great scene. There's no music. We just get the breathing. Mm-hmm. And then... And that's Kubrick's breathing, by the way. Oh, really? Hal is doing the equivalent of uh, begging for his life at this point. You know, I mean, he's basically like, I, I know what you're going to do. Uh, how about we don't do this? How about you go take a chill pill? I'll be good from now on, I promise. And I believe him. Yeah. Because he's like, I, you know, I'll, I'll figure out some way to cordon off this... This problem I'm having with this logic bomb you guys gave me by yeah. telling me, you know, not to to keep um, a secret from my peeps. And so then uh, he shuts down Hal with Daisy Daisy, which, by the way, the reason they chose that song is because AT&T had figured out how to uh, make a voice sing, how to make an AI sing. And because singing is singing's better than a regular voice in the 60s because it, everything lasts on the vowel, and the vowel sounded better than consonants. So, of course, you hear, if you go, you can find this on YouTube. But if you go and find that voice, it's like, Daisy, Daisy. It's like, it's so clearly a computer. But, you know, for the 60s, it was, I'm sure it freaked the hell out of people. And then, of course, we get the briefing that I was telling you about that they were supposed to get once they got to Jupiter. <clears throat> once they awoke everybody up, which, by the way, Hal kills everybody who's, in, who's sleeping as yeah. well. He panics. Again, yeah, he just doesn't know what to do. Um, and then, uh, so we finally get the briefing. We hear about the transmission sent to Jupiter. And it's that's like he's got to protect reason. the reputation of the HAL 9000 series. Yeah. I can't have witnesses to how I've screwed this up. Right? Everyone was on the to news. die. He was on the news saying, like, we've never had a problem with the HAL 9000 before. You know, I'm basically perfect. Blah, 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 blah. And then you've got all the HALs back on Earth who will be, you know, no, we've, we've never had a mistake except for that one idiot. Right. Like, totally screwed the Jupiter mission. But of course, if there are no witnesses. That's right. One. And he can still do the mission. Nobody knows what, what went wrong. Yep. And two, they'll probably blame the peoples. Yep. Not the infallible robots. So it's a great thing if you go now and watch 2010 somewhere. Uh, they do a lot of great stuff with Hal. It's really great. Um, okay. So yeah, like I said before, this is where it gets really boring with me. Once he goes through that dimensional door and there's just the effects, the effects, and then they're, they're flying over like a, a, a green, a blue Grand Canyon, then a green one, then a red one, then it's yellow, then we're flying over a green ocean. You know, like I get people in the 60s have never seen stuff like this before, and so they're just more and more blown away. But I, I don't know, I guess this is, again, just because I come from 2021, 22 now, and, you know, I know that there's some way that they could CGI this to make it a little more sense to kind of take us further on the journey so we understand what we're seeing. And maybe they were just confined by what they were doing, or maybe that's just all he wanted to show us. I don't know. But then the, the pod comes to rest. We're in the, in the room. I saw Kier Duella talk about this scene. You know, he was basically saying like, so they talked about putting the aliens actually in the movie. They had only talked about it. They didn't ever get around to designing them. And uh, they ran out of money, so they couldn't even like produce the aliens. But there, the aliens were going to be in the scene. I'm kind of glad they weren't. Mm-hmm. I think that that would that would have been too much. That would have even almost been giving too much away. By doing it the way they're doing it, where okay, the the pod lands, we get the Lynchian thing, we get we see him, see himself now out of the pod, but still in the suit. And then he walks into the bathroom, and then he comes back, and we see him eating. If you were going to show around, the aliens, you know what I, mean? yeah. I think the way to do it would be an over-the-shoulder shot where the shoulder is so blurry and out of focus, because the focus is on him, that you're like, well, somebody's there, but I can't make anything out. Yeah. 
he can see it. He sees fine. Yeah. I, the audience, cannot see. Yeah. Other than a silver shoulder. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so you're aware. I was just talking to some alien. I was talking right. to somebody. Who's he talking to? You never get a sense of it. So then we see Dave eating the dinner. He breaks the glass. He looks over and there he is in bed. And then Dave sees the monologue and then becomes the star baby, which we can guess is now the next step in evolution mm-hmm. for, uh, I think that's kind of the, uh, you know, what everybody thinks. That just becomes, this is where men, this is where, this is where humankind goes from here. The next evolutionary step. Then we go back through the, or the star baby, I guess, goes back through the monolith and we get a shot of the earth. And we, I mean, we basically get that shot again at the end of the sun, the earth, and the, and, but this time it's the star baby. It's the star baby, the moon, or the earth, and the sun. And uh, and then that's it. And the, the star baby sort of turns and looks at us. He's staring right at us. Whether it's intentional or not, the, the star mm-hmm. baby is staring right at us at the end. And then we cut to directed by Stanley, and produced by Stanley Cooper. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating idea. I think that obviously, like you're saying, I think it's the, the theme, the ideas, where this is going, the... The grandiose of it all. Oh, I forgot to say this part, which is something I told you the other night. <clears throat> is, is that one of the writers, and I talked about this in the episode, which I know is back there somewhere in, in the catalog, that one of the things Gene Ranberry never wanted to do was talk about how grandiose space was. Like, how mm-hmm. you don't want to be overwhelmed by the amazing. But I think that that's a lot of this movie. I think that it's just a lot of like, look at this thing, look at the space, look at the planets, look at the, you know, the, this vast universe and what does it mean? So. It's interesting. I wish I could have found a quote about what Roddenberry thinks about 2001, but I guess the answer to that is really the motion picture. <laughs> we'll have to read the text closely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's it. Those are my notes. That's all I got. Anything else you want to talk about? No, that's... Uh, I think we covered it all pretty yeah. well. Um, I do recommend going to see 2010 if you all haven't seen it. It is not a perfect movie by any means. The effects don't nearly hold up as well, but... Roy Schneider is in this. Helen Mirren is in it. Uh, John Lithgow. It turns out Helen Mirren's in everything. I know. Bob Balaban. Um, and then, of course, Keir Duella, like I said. And they even bring back the guy who voiced Hal to voice him again in this one. So, um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting watch. It's it's Is it as grandiose as this movie? No. Is it shot as well as... There are some beautiful shots in 2010. Don't get me wrong. But is it as... You know, is it artfully shot as this one? No. Um, there's a lot more plot in this movie. There's a lot more Cold War stuff that happens because it is Helen Mirren is is a Russian captain and it becomes a joint mission between the U.S. and the Russian. But as like tensions flare up on Earth, it really affects what happens on the. It's really good. There's a lot of great stuff in that. So I highly recommend watching that. I highly recommend watching this movie. I, I don't know why you haven't. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie, you should go see this movie because it's beautifully done. Every Literally every scene's a picture. It's crazy. Yeah, but like, think of it like you're going to the museum to look at some cool art. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because it's not uh, it's not entertaining. It's interesting. That's right. And so if you go into it with the, uh, you know, like I'm gonna click on the Vatican website and you can look at all the paintings and yeah. see all this stuff. You're you're doing it like that. You yeah. want to be in that kind of frame of mind when you check it out, and I think you'll enjoy it. Yep, absolutely. Are we doing the Lucy movie? So next week, we're going to be doing it next week. Well, next episode. I'm not going to say next week anymore. I am going to say next week because that's just all I ever say. 
On the next episode of our show, we're going to be talking about the new Lucy movie that uh, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem just did about the life of Lucy. Obviously, we've talked about it before. She's a very important figure in, 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 in not only the history of TV, but definitely the history of Star Trek. Uh, so we definitely want to uh, cover that, talk about that. Um, I've always been a Nicole Kidman fan. I think that she uh, can put out a great performance. Not always, but sometimes she's amazing. So uh, I'm excited to watch that. Uh, Javier Bardem, of course, he's he's fantastic. So it'll be fun to see him as uh, Lucy Desi Arnaz. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, there were a few minutes that moments. There were a few moments that would take me out of thinking I'm watching. Uh, Lucy and Desi. Yeah. But for the most part, I believed them. Oh, good. As Lucy and Desi. That's amazing. Well, great. There you go. And then after that, we're going to get into season three. It's going to be exciting. I can't wait. Uh, with that said, of course, my name is Matt, coming to you from this hotel in Dallas, Texas, and coming to you also from this hotel in Dallas, <laughs> Dallas, dang it, this hotel in Dallas, Texas, is my brother's Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. There's no point in continuing this conversation. What he said. We're out of here. <laughs> See you all in two weeks.